In 2016, I uh, got the opportunity to travel to uh, Columbus, uh, Ohio, to take part in some ministry that uh, was similar to what we do here with Restore Groups. I got to do some teaching. Uh, I did um, some group leading over there. It was a great time. We had this moment when I was leading this group uh, with this uh, co-leader of mine where um, we were just talking about how tricky it is to live as a human in a fallen world. Uh, to be the person that Jesus has um, asked you to be and wants you to be in a place where things can be pretty messy. And um, it, it was a fascinating conversation. There was a, it was a real kind of roundtable conversation about how tricky it was. And, and then this guy at one point says this thing. He goes, you know what we really need? He goes, what we really need is like an alien or something that's kind of perfect, that can come from outside of the world and kind of teach us how to do it. And, and everyone's sitting there and they're going, yeah, yeah, that's what we, and I'm sitting there going, is it what I'm seeing, what I'm seeing? It's like, isn't that Jesus, right? It comes from outside of our world and, and he's perfect and he teaches us how to, how to walk in the world that we're actually in. Uh, we actually have one of those. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, the things sometimes that can be tricky in, uh, in reading the Gospels, for example, and, and we often kind of think about it is Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Um, and, uh, and there's some things that Jesus does that are unique to who he is, but there's a lot of things that Jesus does that are normal for humans. And being able to kind of work out which one's which along the way can be a little bit tricky. And uh, so we're up to this section uh, in John chapter 14, the closing section of it, which is really a summing up of a bunch of things that Jesus has been saying on this night before his crucifixion. And, um, and there's a bunch of things in this last little section that are kind of typical of Jesus' divinity, his godness, but there's also a bunch of parts to it that are, that are normal for humanity. And so today we're just going to look at this passage. We're going to look at um, how Jesus kind of wraps up this little section, and you'll see at the end that it is a bit of a wrap-up. Um, and we'll see the things that are unique to his divinity and also the things that we can learn about which are normal for us. Uh, and, and uh, we would do well to imitate it. So if you've got your Bibles there with you, you can go to uh, John chapter 14. We're going to read verse 28 to 31. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 28 to 31. Uh, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. You loved me. You'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe. I'll not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Let's look at the first uh, thing that shows up in this passage this morning, and that's the Father and home. This is John 14, 28. Jesus says, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. Now, this one's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, Jesus is saying something that he said numerous times in this chapter. He's going away and he's going to come back. And I think the going away that he's actually talking about is the verse 2 and 3 of chapter 14 going away. It's going to the Father's house. He's going to ascend back to heaven. And before too long, he is going to come back. And evidently, the disciples are not very excited about this, Right? They're not into it. Um, you can see this in Jesus' next words in verse 28. 
He says, if you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going back to the Father because the Father's greater than I. Uh, now, you don't have to have too much imagination to see what Jesus is up, up to here by this last statement. He's straightening the disciples up a little bit. Do you see that? He's straightening them up. Why? Because they're stuck thinking about what life's going to be like without Jesus being there. And at one level, this is really understandable that you'd be like this, right? I mean, they've given their lives to this guy. He's done some amazing things. He's been healing people, healing cripples, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, raising dead people. In one sense, they've kind of had supermen with them the whole time, right? That's what they've had. Um, and they're probably thinking about that right now at this point in John 14 and I wonder whether you could identify with that with how they're feeling because I reckon we'd probably be the same right if you had someone like that with you the whole time and they said they were going to leave well I wouldn't be too comfortable either at that point in time but notice what Jesus does at the end of verse 28 is he actually throws in something that's meant to temper their grief what is it well, the bit that's meant to temper their grief is this. The Father is Jesus' true home. The Father is Jesus' true home. You see, if you look at the disciples, one of the things that you see with the disciples is they're thinking, it would seem mostly, about what they're going to be missing out on. And they're not thinking about what would be best for Jesus. You see that? And, you know, thinking about someone else and what would be best for them is actually central to how we understand what love is you want the best for other people and I, and I want to ask you this question and the difficulty with asking the question just as a bit of a preface is that we have all this religious overlay that kind of goes over the top of it okay and also there's all this biblical teaching on and about honoring God and 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 serving the Lord and that's all good um that's good maybe some of the religious overlay is not good but the biblical teaching on it is good, but here's my question for you. Do you ever think about what would be good for God? Like in a loving way. I mean, that's what Jesus is talking about, isn't he, here? In John 14, verse 28. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father. Like if the disciples loved him, they'd be glad that something good is going to happen to Jesus. Do, do you get what I'm saying? Like there's a, you know, we can put all the overlay over the top of it, but I, I just want you to think about it at just a personal level. Like if you love something, someone, you just want something good to happen to them. Um, I got to sit in a boat and watch a couple of my boys on donuts behind a, on a dam yesterday and to see the massive smiles on their faces. It was, I had the time of my life and I wasn't even out there. Why? Because I love them. And, and, they're, and they're loving it and they're enjoying it and they're having this great time. It's like, that's what I want. I want good for them. Do you ever think that way with God? That you want good for him? Because you love him? You know, if Jesus' home is with the Father, wouldn't you want him to go there? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want him to be there? Of course you would. That's, that's what love is. Now, I've been to a bunch of funerals and most of the funerals I've been to are uh, funerals of Christians who have died and if you're here today and you're not a Christian let me just tell you how it works when you die if you haven't trusted Jesus 
for uh, saving you from your sins, if you haven't repented and turned from the way of life that you're doing, you don't get to go to heaven. It doesn't matter whether you go to a a funeral of uh, someone who says, oh, they're in a better place now. If they didn't believe in Jesus, they're not going to be in a better place. That's how it works. You've got to trust in Jesus and ask him to forgive you and repent of your sins to actually go to heaven. Um, But if you have done that, uh, heaven is amazing, right? It's, It's an incredible place. You get to go to be in heaven in a perfect place and be with God forever and there's nothing better than that. And so when you go to a funeral of a Christian... There's grief in the air. That's absolutely the case. And there's a sense of loss in the air as well. Um, You get in there and, of course, everyone who knew the person is bummed about it, right? Because they'd like to have the person still around. Um, But but do you know, uh, for those those of you who've been to a funeral of a Christian, know what I'm talking about, um, grief is tempered at the funeral of a Christian, right? It's just tempered. Right now, so you go, well, what's tempering? Well, tempering is actually what you do to steel, right? So the way that it works with steel is the way God's designed steel is that if you heat steel up to a certain temperature and then cool it really quickly, it traps all the carbon inside the cells of the steel and it makes it really, really hard, but it actually makes it really brittle as well. So what you need to do is you need to heat it up not quite as hot and then quench it again. And what it does is it retains most of the hardening, but it's not brittle anymore, it tempers it. It tempers it. And, and there's, there's a tempering of grief at a Christian funeral. And not because the loss isn't real and not because the grief isn't real, uh, but, but because everyone knows where they've ended up, right? They know where they've ended up. And, and if you go to a Christian funeral, you're going to hear things like, oh, he, he's in a better place now. Um, she's with Jesus now. Uh, better for them to be there than here, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and even people saying, I, I wish I could be there right now. Um, you see, the, the depth of love that you have for someone at, who's, who's passed away when you go to their funeral is connected to the loss that you feel. But your love is also tempered um, because you want the best for them. And for a Christian, there's nothing better than being with Jesus in his presence um, all the time. It would be weird, wouldn't it, if you went to a funeral of a Christian and the only thing that you focused on was your loss? Wouldn't that be weird? It's like, oh, I've lost so much. And people are going, hang on, man, seriously, just have a look a little bit down the track. It's like, no, no, I've lost so much. I can't believe it. I'm not going to be able to live without this. And you could say those things. But there's something about where people are going that tempers the grief. I think that's some of what's going on here. Of course, there's going to be some loss when Jesus goes, but it's meant to be tempered by your love for him. Of course, you'd want him to be with the Father, you know, and it's easy for us sometimes where we just think about Jesus and what he does for us rather than what's good for him, right? Don't we sometimes? And it'd be good for us to think about what would be good for him, you know, there's an element that's going on here between Jesus and the Father that is unique because Jesus is divine. But there's actually an element going on here about Jesus being at home with the Father, which is common to humanity. It's the way it's meant to be. And, and this is the bottom line. The Father's your true home. 
The Father is your true home. Um, you see, this is not just the default setting for Jesus as a member of the Trinity in his divinity. This is your default setting. In fact, this is the default setting for every single human that's ever lived, that your home is actually being with the Father. In particular, it's the home of anyone who loves Jesus now and not the home of other people unless they come to faith in Christ. Um, How do we know this? Well, we only have to go back to the beginning of John 14. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you may, you also may be where I am. Is it an actual house? I don't think so. What is it about the house that's important? Well, the house is where God the Father dwells and Jesus is going to take you to where he dwells. Jesus' is true, it's true home is being with the Father. I want to say to you, your true home is being with the Father. And, and I'll tell you this, and you need to hear this, if that is your final destination, if that is your true home, then what should happen and what ought to happen and what would be normal is for that to kind of run threads right through your life to where you're sitting right now. You'd be able to tell, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd do things and be like, ah, right, okay, they're not settling in here. <laughs> There's some evidence in there, you know, that you're, uh, you're made for somewhere else. You know, where you think your true home is will shape everything that you do. If it's the Father, you'll see the evidence of that. But unfortunately, sometimes what happens to us is we think our true home is somewhere else. And when we think it's somewhere else, whatever that true home is that we think, that's actually going to filter through all of our life as well. So if someone looked at your life and they had to do an analysis of uh, some kind of detective work maybe to work out where is that person thinking their true home is, I wonder what they would conclude. Jesus' home and your home are one and the same, being with the Father. Second thing we're going to look at today is the devil and sin. Uh, this is verse 30. Um, a little while ago, we live out in the high fields. A little while ago, I was driving into work. And uh, as I was driving into work, um, I, I was thinking about the world. And this, this happens for me every now and then. You may not do this stuff. And apologies if letting you inside my head is disturbing for you. But I'm thinking about the world. And uh, I'm driving down my, Mount Kainok towards Toowoomba and then I look out to the left across to Lockyer Valley and we, we have got some awesome scenery uh, here in Toowoomba. It's absolutely incredible. I looked at the trees. I imagined all the animals just in that patch of the world and I thought about atheistic evolution. As you do, right? And, uh, and you know, I, look, I... I think that there are many good reasons for believing this world was created by an intelligent designer, not by a cosmic accident, all right? And we can have that conversation uh, if you want to have that. But on, on this particular day, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about the kind of world that that system leaves you in. See, what it, the kind of world it leaves you in is a world that is only material things. It's only physical things. Um, 
And there isn't any deeper meaning to it. Only physical matter. Only what you can see. Only genes and DNA and chemicals. That's all you can see. And you know, I thought on this particular day, I thought that is a very depressing world. Right? It's a very depressing world. And it's, it's a bit of a broad generalization. And someone said, oh, you're generalizing things. And yes, I am, right? That's what you get to do when you're a preacher. Um, but there's some part of me that just thinks, you know, no wonder mental health issues are skyrocketing because there's no purpose or point to anything. It's a flat world. It's a cardboard world. And you know what I found myself thinking? And, and I want you to hear me say this in the street level usage of the world, not in the kind of true dictionary definition, so to speak, but I found myself thinking this, I thought, I want to live in an enchanted world. That's what I want to live in. I want to live in a world where there's more going on than meets the eye. That's what I want to live in. I want to live in a world where there's a water fight. Where beauty's a thing. You see, when you, when you believe in atheistic evolution, you can't even say something's beautiful. It's not beautiful, it's just a thing. It's just matter. I want to live in a world where goodness exists. And I even want to live in a world where there's such a thing as evil. Not because evil exists, but such a thing that we can actually say that something's evil. I want to live in a world where good fights against evil and good wins. That's what I want to live in. And if, if I had the choice, I think I'd want to live in a world like Lord of the Rings without the orcs. Or Narnia. Are you with me? Where there's more going on than meets the eye. I want to live in an enchanted world. I want to live in a magical world. That's the world I want to live in. Well, that's actually what the world is like. <laughs> that's actually what it is. There is more going on than meets the eye. In fact, there's more going on which you can't see than there is that you can see in the world. And, and do you know something? I don't know whether you ever think about it and, you know left open to the accusation that Jesus made of the Pharisees. He made people twice the son of hell as, as they are. You don't have to think about things the way that I do. But do you know something? There's, there's a way in which our godless belief system that we live in has a way of sucking beauty out of our lives. Being able to say that something is beautiful and it actually is. It has a way of sucking goodness out. We can't even say that something's good anymore. It sucks purpose out. What is the purpose? Well, it's just to exist until you die. Well, why wouldn't some people want to kill themselves if that's the only thing that's going on? If your life's hell and it's really difficult, why live anymore? And I want to say to you, there's a lot of good reasons to keep living. godless belief system that we live in sucks purpose out of us it sucks even and I don't mean 
actual evil, but understanding and being able to see what evil is out of us. Being able to name it and say it. Now, our culture still calls things evil, and you'll hear it on the news every now and then, but I don't even know what they mean anymore. Because I don't even think they know what they mean anymore when they call something evil. What is that? Is that just hurting someone else? Is that it? Is that all we've got to say? Our godless belief system, you've just got to be on your guard because it sucks the life out of us, even literally. In our world, let me tell you the truth about our world. In our world, there is a being who was an angel. And he turned on God, and from all we can work out in Scripture, a third of the angels went with him. And he's called the devil and his angels. And this devil exercises some serious influence in the world. You can see this in uh, what Jesus says here in John 14, verse 30. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. And you note the term there that Jesus uses for the devil is the prince, right? The prince has got some authority in this world. And if you go to other parts of Scripture, uh, you'll see that Scripture refers to the devil as the ruler of this world. You see that in Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is the character to whom Jesus refers when he talks about the prince of this world. And the prince was coming in a very specific way to take Jesus out on the cross. And the prince's plan, the prince of this world, his plan was to make it the greatest victory ever. I'm going to take out the Son of God. This is going to get rid of all of my problems if I can get rid of Jesus. But his plan on making this event his greatest victory ended up being his greatest defeat, didn't it? Um, but what's interesting about uh, this whole thing is what Jesus says about him. Um, and, and he says that he is a prince, and Scripture says he's a ruler, but he has no hold over Jesus. And you go, well, that would be nice for the devil to not have any hold over you. And you could ask the question, well, how could that be? Is this just another example of a part of Jesus that's connected to his divinity that, that we don't uh, necessarily directly relate to? Like the devil has some kind of hold over humanity, but he doesn't have a hold over Jesus because Jesus was God as well. And I don't think that's actually what's going on here. Because um, if you want to understand how the devil's a ruler, how he's a prince, you've got to understand how he gets his authority over people. And uh, you could say, well, how does he, Peter? And, and I would just say to you, he gets his authority when people sin. That's, that's the short answer. Whenever you sin, whenever humanity sins, we give authority and power to him over us. And you can see this right through Scripture. If you go to uh, John's first letter that he wrote in uh, 1 John, I'm just going to read these. You can see the connection between sin and the authority of the devil. 1 John 3 verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 5, 18 to 19, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. 
The one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, can you see what's going on here? When you sin, the devil gets some kind of power over people. When you don't sin, the devil has no power over you. He has nothing on you. And that's why he had no hold on Jesus. Uh, because Jesus never sinned. We know that in John eight forty six. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin, Jesus says. And the answer is no, no one could. And so the devil could have no power over him. He has nothing on him. He has no hold on him. And we go, well, that must be nice, right? That must be nice. And it would be, wouldn't it? Um, but the, the struggle for us is that we continue to blow it. And, and so an obvious question at this point in time that you could ask is, Pete, just tell me how you get to the point of the devil not having any hold over you. How do you get to that? Well, in spite of what you've seen up here from John in 1 John 5 verse 18, uh, the start there, he says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. John knows that you still sin. Um, You can see that in 1 John 1. There's a provision there for people who do sin. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness uh, but here's the bottom line here's the here's the the mega kind of break in the hole that the devil has over you is when you come to faith when you give your life to jesus in that moment um, jesus uh, uh, forgives you and pays the price for all of your sin on the cross you become his child you become purified and what that actually means is that in an ultimate sense it's it's jesus who has a hold on you but there is, in a very practical, functional kind of sense, uh, a way in which the devil can have some influence on us when we sin, when we step out uh, from God's good hold on us. Um, and, and so the question is, how do you get to the point of, um, of, of not being kind of under the hold of the devil? Well, the first point is, don't sin. It's, there you go. Oh, okay. Uh, can you give me something more helpful, Pete? Well, the second thing is, when you do sin, you need to go to Jesus and get forgiveness and return to him. That's what you need to do. You need to go. I mean, the devil's not called the accuser of the brethren for nothing. Right? You just got to run back to him. And it's, it's important for you to remember that, that you... Even though you're a Christian and you love Jesus, the devil is snooping around trying to wreck stuff. And he he wants to actually get a hold on you. And you don't have to fear that because Jesus is stronger. You just have to stay tight with Jesus. And when you blow it and you get things wrong, you say sorry and you ask Jesus to forgive you and you get rid of all those things in a practical sense that Jesus got rid of in the cross in a fullest sense. You get rid of all those things so that there's nothing in between you and God. In a functional sense, when we blow it, we kind of the devil's got something on us. He's, it, it, it's, it's not that he owns us, but he's got something on us. I'm going to see some more about that just in a moment. You've got to remember that you're living in a war zone. And you, and you need to live like you're in a war zone. It's not, it's not a cruise ship. Might be one day, but it's not now. It's a war zone right now. It's this great quote 
from Mere Christianity, from C.S. Lewis, and it's been in my head for so long, and I, for my life, I could not find it, and I found it this week. I saw a, um, got posted on a social media thing of all places. I went, that's the one I've been looking for for about three years. And it's awesome, and it's so relevant for what I'm talking about today. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparent trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. It's good, isn't it? How do you think about the little things? That's really what Lewis is saying. How do you think about the little things? And we're not even just talking about the little bad things. We're talking about the little good things. See, that, that's, that's war zone mentality. This could be the next hill <laughs> from which the next attack is going to come. But if you've ever seen a war movie, it looks like there's about four people that make it through to take the hill, right? And what do those four people have to do? Well, they have to hold it, right? You take it and then you hold it until the reinforcements come. So keep taking the hills, right? And I'm not, this is, a, this is an exhortation, this is not a rebuke. Just keep taking the hills. If there's something good to do and it's a small thing, do the good thing. If a small temptation comes along, push it back. Because you don't want the devil to take a hill in your life and then he launches an attack. Amen? Take the little hills and, and then wait for reinforcements and hold it and then keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Because it's going to be in all of the small moments. You know, we're all like... We want to do really well at the small moments, but life is filled 99.9% with small moments and taking those hills and holding them. So you keep taking them and you keep holding them. Let's go on to the third thing that, that uh, Jesus talks about. This is at the end of the passage. Uh, verse 31. Um, let's just read that. Verse 31. Have a look at it. Just by way of reminder. But he, that's the devil Jesus is talking about. The devil comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Now, I love this verse. This has just become one of my favorite verses. And I've been reading this one for a while. And, and it's like, every time I get to a psych, I just have to stop and meditate on it and think about it. it. It just hooks me, right? Because what Jesus is doing is he's connecting the work of the devil and his crucifixion on the cross with something else. There's a purpose statement in there. And it's not what you'd expect. You know, if you and I were writing that verse... The devil comes so the world may learn what? What? Well, I don't know whether I'd put down what Jesus puts down. 
that the world may learn that I have a very tricky way of tricking the devil. Maybe. I don't know. What would you put in there? It, it's, it's odd, right? One of the, the reasons, and the reason Jesus gives here why the devil's going to come and have Jesus crucified is so that the whole world will learn that Jesus loves the Father and does exactly what he says. Wow. Right? I mean, chew on that one for a moment. And, and I just want to break it down uh, into, into the two parts that I think are there. And the, the first one is testing. Uh, and the other one's love and obedience. Uh, we'll have a quick look at them both. This is not the first time that the devil has come at Jesus. It is not. I mean, he comes at Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. And you just need to know, and if you've been here long enough, you've heard me talk about it, you've heard us talk about it, testing is normal and it's a normal process for growing people into being true humans. It's normal, all right? Um, And it's just not unusual. And it's not unusual in Jesus' life and it's not unusual in our lives. Either God regularly does it to grow us. And what does it reveal in Jesus when he gets tested by the devil in this particular situation? Well, when Jesus gets tested, it reveals his love for the Father. That's what it reveals. It reveals the fact that Jesus does exactly what his Father says. And, and so one of the things that ought to tell you, uh, which I think it says, is um, loving the Father and doing what he says is normal for true humans. All right? That's just normal. Um, I mean, if someone was to come into church this week and say, and we say, how was your week? It's like, oh, I, just, I just love the Father. I mean, it'd be a weird answer, but you get what I'm saying. It's like, oh, I just love the Father and I just wanted to do everything he said this week. And, and really, it's a, I mean, tell me something exciting because we just hear that all the time. It's just so hum. Like it, it's, it's one of those things where you just go, it ought to be ho-hum, normal, and just frequent news around the place. Do, do you get what I'm saying? That, that's, that's what's normal uh, for being truly human. And more on that in a moment. Um, but just back to the testing thing. The devil's going to come at Jesus and test him. And, and there is something that's really unique about the testing that happens to Jesus. Um, something connected to his divinity and his mission. But you know something? There's actually something that's normal about it for all of humanity. Because here's the bottom line. You seem to know the devil's going to come at you and test you. That's what's going to happen. All right? He doesn't just come at Jesus and test Jesus. He's going to come at you. And it's like, sometimes you're going to know it's him. Sometimes you're not going to know it's him. And you need to expect it. I mean, you, you cannot... If you're living in a war zone... And you align, you have to align with one side, all right? There's no in-between. If you're living in a war zone and you align with Jesus and the devil hates him and wants to kill him, why would you think that you're going to get a clear run? You're not, gonna, you're not getting a clear run. In fact, if you join the devil's team, you're not going to get a clear run either. And it ends spectacularly badly. Amen? And, and I'm not saying that you need to go home and start looking for demons and devils everywhere. I'm not even saying that, right? 
Because here's the bottom line. He's not going to be messing with you all the time. I mean, the book of Romans is one of the heaviest theological books in the Bible, arguably the most, and the devil doesn't show up until about chapter 13. All right? And the bottom line is all of us have got enough talent to mess our own lives up without the devil even needing to be involved. Who give me an amen on that? Amen. Yeah, that's the loudest one this morning. All right? He's not going to be messing with you all the time. Right? There's some people come up and say that the devil's messing with them and, and like they, someone snuck in in front of them getting a car park and it was the devil. It's like, it's not the devil, right? But to say that everything's the devil and nothing's the devil are two extremes that we don't want to live in. You just have to be clear that he's snooping around doing stuff. You see this in Scripture, uh, 1 Peter 5 verse 8. This is a warning to the church. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And this one in particular is uh, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26. It's a bit scary. It's kind of opponents in the church. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses, listen to this, and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That's, that's interesting, right? Let's finish here. Go back to verse 31. But he, the devil, comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. What is the work of the devil going to reveal? The work of the devil is going to reveal that Jesus loves the Father and does exactly what the Father commands him to do. Now, while I was studying my um, teaching degree at uh, Sydney Uni, I got a job at uh, Kurong, uh, the Christian bookstore, and I got a job in their warehouse. It's a great job. It was really flexible. And uh, the guy who started Kurong was the owner, and he would come down into the warehouse from time to time, right? And I don't think he could say my name, Sondergeld, so he called me Zondervan, which is a Bible publisher, <laughs> right? He'd always call me Zondervan. He'd go, Zondervan, what are you doing? Um, anyway, one of his favorite sayings was, uh, he used to come down and he'd walk up to me and he'd go, Zondervan, if I ask you to jump, you ask me when, how high, and how long you're supposed to say up for. <laughs> is that what's going on here between the Father and Jesus? Is, is, uh, I mean, he did it tongue-in-cheek. Uh, the owner did. But do you hear a, a, um, a heaviness in terms of authority, like an oppressiveness going on here? Maybe here's a word that's getting a fair bit of usage now. Is, is the Father coercive with Jesus? Um, what the father's some kind of dominating figure and, and Jesus doesn't have much say in it all uh, well you can't go there because Jesus just doesn't let you go there because the connection that Jesus is making is between his love for the father and his obedience to him it, it's not a connection between the father's pressure and his obedience I mean the father's authority is not in view really here at this point uh, it is in other places, but it's not in view at this point. What is in view is the son's love for the father. And, and I've dealt with this previously, and this is another one of those ones that's kind of summing up. But the way that we read and understand this verse um, can mess with us a little bit. And the root problem, I think, is the way that we split love and obedience from one another. Uh, and, and it can be easy to read this verse like this. Uh, if Jesus loves the father, then he has to do what he says. I wonder if you read it that way when you read it. Because that's not what Jesus is saying. 
He just isn't saying that. When Jesus says that he loves the Father and he does exactly what the Father says, here's how you're meant to respond. Of course. <laughs> of course you would. This is how every child responds to a father that loves them. They just take it on face value. That's what you do. If the father says, hey, here's a good thing for you to do. A child who, who loves a father, who knows that a father loves them and wants their best interest, just goes, sure. Of course. Of course. You, you don't need an argument. You don't need a defense. You don't have to verify anything. You just do. Now, all people are sinners and everyone starts as kids. But younger kids tend to be a little bit better at this than than teenagers, to be honest. Um, just tend to take things on face value a bit. But as um, kids get older, and especially they get into teenage years, they start asking one particular question. Can anyone think of what that is? It's usually one, yeah, it's why, right? They ask, they ask why. Why this? Why that? Now, I'm not saying that why is a bad question to ask. Um, it's not necessarily a problem by default, but asking why can become a problem, all right? Um, because if you're, if you're a parent, you've had the experience where you ch your child has asked you why a whole bunch of times, and it's not about getting a reason anymore. It's the, fa the fact that they don't agree with you. And you have to keep explaining yourself until you say something they agree with, and then they say, that's a good idea. Because it's what they think. That's the bottom line. You see, what's going on behind the scenes in that kind of conversation when it's just why, 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 why is it's actually not a loving relationship where the child loves the parent and they know the parent loves them. There's a, there's a trust issue going on there. The child doesn't want to trust the father. But if you had someone like the father, God the father, who is all wise and thoroughly loving and good and he told you he wanted you to do something wouldn't you just go of course of course you would you'd have to be an idiot not to do that you with me that would be a wonderful expression of your trust in him it would be a sign that you love him so much see the the constant debate um, pops up every now and then is that, you know, the old, old chestnut, right? Uh, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden when he knew what would happen? Well, as far as we know, Adam and Eve didn't ask that question, at least not until the devil got involved anyway. Because you know how it's meant to work? And God goes, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're meant to go, yeah, of course. That'd be fine. And, and they don't need to ask why. And it's like, can you give me like six bullet point reasons for why you've done this? It's like, no, you don't, you don't need that. that. That's kind of how it works, right? Now, he's a good father. He's, he's wise. He's loving. He loves you. You don't need to know all the reasons all the time. And that's one of the things that actually frustrates us sometimes about Scripture, isn't it? Because there's, there's answers that we don't have. And you go, I really want to know what that answer is. And sometimes we go down a rabbit hole looking for an answer in a particular area and and God doesn't quite close it off for you. And you go, it just really irritates me that you don't do that. And 
If you know that he loves you and you love him, you'll be able to pull up. See, I know what I'm talking about. You just go, I trust him. I trust him. I trust that he's good. And that even if there isn't a good answer that I can see right now, he would have a good answer, wouldn't he? And, and I think, I would even say that to any of you who are struggling and going through some trouble at the moment, that one of the questions that you ask is you ask why in the middle of it. And I just want to say to you that God won't always answer that for you. And it will be really frustrating because we all want to know why. And the reason why he doesn't always answer it is there's something bigger that he's going for than just having an answer to why a hard thing's happening to you. And it's trust. It's trust. And I just want to say to you, if you're in the middle of trouble and you don't have an answer and you're asking why, I just want you to hear me on this. He has a good answer, but you don't necessarily have to know what it is right now. He has a good answer. The kind of love and trust that God's looking for is the one that goes, of course. Of course I'd do that. Of course I'd do that. I'll do exactly what you say. You know, you could, let's call Sunday the first day of the week. Don't know what it is on your calendar, but let's just call it the first day of the week. You could just decide, even right now, where you just go, you know, Father's really good. And if he thinks that there's something good for me to do, I'm just going to give it my best shot this week just to do what he says. Because it's got to be good. It's got to be good. Is that you? Do you have that kind of unquestioning obedience? Here's the, the pivot point. Do you love whatever comes from God's mouth and think that it's good? Sure, I'll do that. Sure. That's a good idea. You think that way about what God says? My prayer is that he'd make us that kind of people. That we just go, yeah, sure. Of course. Of course, that'd have to be good. Oh, loving your enemies? Yeah. If you said it, it must be good. Let's do that. I'll be patient. Yeah, come on. Let's do the patience thing. And, and you kind of grit your teeth, grit your teeth emoji. But it's good, isn't it? It's good. I'm done. Let's pray. I wonder if you'd stand with me and uh, maybe the music team can come up. Those three takeaways for you this morning. Um, thinking about, you know, uh, the father and home. Is the father your true home? Is it the way that you think? Thinking about the devil having no hold over you. The sin thing. Um, and the, uh, the last one there is um, testing in the nature of love. So let's, let's pray. Jesus, we're just really thankful to you for how you've spoken to us through um, uh, the Gospel of John, in particular the last, um, the last uh, section in John 14. And uh, it feels a little like farewelling a, a good friend. Um, but uh, we just, we love what you've, what you've spoken to us. Uh, I give you thanks for how you've spoken to me through it and um, I pray in particular that your word and the things that you say would reverberate inside of us 
And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be actively involved in doing that uh, so that we would uh, meditate and chew over and revisit and savor and hear again the things that you say. We really love you and uh, we think that everything you say is really good. And I pray that you'd help us just to follow you and, and to, uh, to be near you and to, um, to do what you say. Exactly. Amen.